We continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. My sermon this morning is entitled, The Lord Sends David Away. There are two quotations that I have included in my sermons more than any others. I have included these two quotations multiple times in different sermons. The first quotation is from a British pastor and theologian, John Stott, and it is as follows. An unchurched Christian is a grotesque anomaly. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. I love the passion with which John Stott speaks about the church. The second quotation that I have used more than any other is a quotation by Canadian theologian D.A. Carson, and it is as follows. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty, yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to the secondary agents, to secondary causes, i.e., those who actually do it. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. If this sounds just a bit too convenient for God, my initial response, though there is more to be said, is that according to the Bible, this is the only God there is. Now, one of those two quotations pertains directly to the main point of this passage that we are dealing with today. And I'll leave you in suspense until we return to one of those quotations near the end of my sermon. For now, let's get started with the text. Point number one, the plan of David, verses 1 through 23. Considering Saul's repeated attempts to kill him and Jonathan's disbelief, David devises a plan to convince Jonathan and justify his departure. Now, we're assuming right now Saul and his associates are waylaid in Naoth. They are under the power of the Spirit, and David takes this opportunity and seizes it so that he can return to Gibeah and meet with Jonathan. The strong friendship that they share, strengthened by a formal covenant, demands that David settle things with Jonathan before he departs for a safer situation. And that is what is on his mind, to depart and get away from Saul. Jonathan, likely kept in the dark by Saul since the time Saul became aware of the covenant friendship between the two, Jonathan is not convinced that David is in peril. David assures Jonathan, saying, there is but a step between me and death. And in order to convince Jonathan, David comes up with a plan, a plan that will see him stay away from the king's presence in order to verify that Saul indeed wishes him ill. David will stay away until Saul inquires about his Whereabouts inquires of Jonathan, where is David? 
And David invents a scenario in which David will supposedly be in Bethlehem for the New Moon Festival. These festivals were laid out in the book of Numbers. Chapter 28, verse 11 says, At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. And supposedly this is where David is going to be. Then Saul's reaction to David's absence would reveal his overall disposition towards David as if we don't know it already. If Saul recognizes that David is gone but is okay with it, all is well. But if Saul gets angry, then Jonathan will be convinced and David will receive the confirmation that indeed harm is determined by Saul against him. Now, if Saul is angry, however, though their uncertainty about that would be removed, there remains a problem, the problem of communicating what happens with David, communicating the outcome of this plan that David has devised. And we can see that Jonathan is is already understanding that they are in danger. He's beginning to be persuaded because he wants to talk about how he will communicate to David what has happened, and yet he asked David, let's, let's go out into the field and talk about this. And so in the field, away from prying eyes, Jonathan now suggests a scheme by which the outcome of David's plan can be communicated to David. David is to hide himself where he has been hiding in the field, and he's to remain near a stone heap. Jonathan will shoot arrows in the direction of the stone heap as if aiming at a target. He will send a boy to retrieve the arrows. If he tells the boy that the arrows are beside him, that means David is safe and he should return to the king's court. But if he tells the uh, boy that the arrows are behind him, that means that David is indeed in danger and he needs to leave. Now in the middle of this plotting, as well as at the end of their conversation, both David and Jonathan look for confirmation of their friendship and of the covenant that they have made with each other. David exclaims, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. And Jonathan says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan even extends this covenant at this time. He says, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. One of which, of course, might be his father. And then he made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. I think it's a good time this morning to discuss for a minute this idea about covenants. It would be hard to overstate the importance of covenants to the Christian faith. There might be, there is in fact, much debate on the minutiae of covenants and how they properly apply in Christianity. But most theologians would not disagree with Canadian professors Stephen Wellam and Peter Gentry when they say covenants 
form the backbone of the meta narrative of Scripture. And thus it is essential to put them together correctly in order to discern accurately the whole counsel of God. Or in the words of Australian theologian Paul Williamson, biblical covenants form the unifying thread of God's saving action through Scripture. This idea of covenants is all through the Bible, and we need to understand it that we might understand God's word. Theologian Thomas Schreiner, in his book, Covenant and God's Purpose for the World, states, a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. And by this definition, we can understand that covenants establish relationship between two parties. Now, in the case of David and Jonathan, they make a covenant. A covenant in which their relationship as fast friends is formalized, such that they promise to relate to each other as the covenant dictates. We saw a moment ago, David promises to not cut off his steadfast love from Jonathan's family forever. And we'll see this come into play later on in the book of 1 Samuel as well as 2 Samuel. We see something similar in our day, in the marriage covenant. Marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman, which is defined by the vows that they make to each other. Last week, we celebrated communion at the Lord's table, and I repeated Jesus' words when I said that the cup that we partook of was Jesus' blood of the new covenant. The new covenant is the term for the relationship that God has with his people in and through Jesus Christ. This relationship, the new covenant, is the culmination of God's redemptive work among his people. And in it, God promises to renew the hearts of his people, to give them new spiritual life, to forgive their sins, to reconcile them to himself, to empower them to obey, and to live with them forever. This new covenant, this is the basis for our faith. And the basis of the new covenant is Christ's death and resurrection. You see, since the time of Christ, if a person will turn from their evil deeds and will entrust themselves to Jesus and his work of redemption, all those promises I just listed and many, many benefits besides will be theirs. And so this concept of covenant is crucial in regards to the Christian faith. And every person should endeavor to enter into this covenant, this covenant of God, the new covenant, through faith in Jesus. Now David and Jonathan's covenant was the basis for the plan that they devise. And they try to ascertain on top of that covenant through this plan what David should do. Should he stay and serve Saul alongside his soulmate Jonathan? Or should he flee for his life? Saul's response makes David's decision obvious and necessary. Point number two, the purposes of God, verse 24 through 34. Saul's sinful and evil reaction determines David's decision. But it is the Lord 
that determines David's destiny. Things play out precisely according to David's plan. Jonathan is in King Saul's presence. David is absent. Saul notices the fact that David is absent and eventually asks Jonathan of his whereabouts. And Jonathan delivers the agreed-upon cover story. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And Saul is furious. So furious, in fact, that he unleashes his anger on Jonathan, initially by insulting him and calling him names. He insists that Jonathan whom he knows is a close friend of David, he insists that Jonathan arrest David or bring about his arrest, that he might be killed. Jonathan, as he has before, advocates for his friend. And this elicits from Saul the full vent of his madness. Saul hurls his spear at Jonathan, his own son, the heir to the throne. He attempts to kill his son, he's so angry. And so David's suspicions and Jonathan's worst fears are confirmed. Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Now I'd like to take a few minutes this morning to talk about anger. And to talk about my own experience in dealing with it. Last year, as Many of you know I met with a biblical counselor, a biblical counselor recommended by Rick to address an issue that I was having with anger. It was only as we were coming out of COVID that I really started to perceive that not only had my internal fuse become much shorter, but the extent of my anger was increasing to the point where I realized, with the help of my wife, that I needed to address it. One of the many things I learned about myself and about anger is that a trigger for me and for many in regards to sinful anger is the feeling of being vulnerable. The sense that I would get in certain situations that I was under attack or in harm's way. And I expect that that is a common thing for men because we do not like to feel vulnerable. And one of the ways we address that is by getting angry. I suspect that, along with other things, one of the reasons Saul is getting angry is because he is confronted by his own vulnerability. He admits as much when he says to Jonathan, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Now, we can't be overly convinced that he's concerned for Jonathan because he's about to throw a spear at him. What he's really concerned about is himself. And he knows that his kingdom will be taken away from him, and therefore he feels vulnerable. And this gives rise to a murderous rage. I learned a lot from this counselor, and I can only touch upon one of the things he showed me this morning. He showed me how my response of sinful anger to those feelings of vulnerability were tantamount to a functional denial of God's existence. 
a willful subtraction of the existence of God in those circumstances. He, of course, knew I was a believer. He knew that I believed in God and that I believed God was with me and that I believed God was watching over me and working all things for my good. Yet, anger was a way of dealing with my vulnerability in my own way and in my own strength while ignoring God's presence and participation in my life. Counselor helped me to see that when I'm feeling vulnerable, instead of denying God with my actions, I can lean into the existence of God, affirm his presence with me, acknowledge his promises to me, and thereby not react with sinful anger. I could run to God and not away from him, and in the strength of his presence, find the safety and security that I mistakenly thought my anger could provide for me. That has been a helpful word for me as I work on this in my own life, and I would encourage all of you who may struggle with anger, and especially you men, to consider if you're not experiencing something similar to me, something similar to Saul, and to recognize that you can respond to your feelings of vulnerability by turning to God instead of turning into a madman. Now, this is very important. It's important that we do not sin against God with that type of anger. But what we also see with this and what I experienced with this is that type of anger also hurts the ones we love. And we see this with Saul, don't we? Jonathan was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And this is where the purposes of God comes in. With Saul's reaction to Jonathan and David's scheme, we know what will happen next. David has to leave. He's going to depart. I don't know if you caught it earlier on in this story. Jonathan, with admirable spiritual discernment, noted what David's departure would mean. If Saul was angry, Jonathan noted, that meant that the Lord has sent you away. The divine purposes of God are revealed when the Lord sovereignly ordains the circumstances in which David has to flee. The parting of these friends is evidence of the purposes of God at work. And that's where we finish this morning. Point number three, the parting of friends. Verse 35 through 42. David and Jonathan mourn as David departs and Jonathan returns to Saul. At the agreed upon time, at the agreed upon place, Jonathan communicates in the agreed upon way what has transpired. Jonathan had made his way to the field. He had brought a young servant with him, a young boy. Jonathan gave instructions to the boy to retrieve the arrows that he shot. And having shot the arrows... He further instructed the boy, is not the arrow beyond you? Which, of course, was code for, Saul is angry, David. You're going to have to go. And so Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy. The boy knew nothing of the plan, knew nothing of David's presence nearby. And Jonathan sent the boy back to the city. And Jonathan and David expressed their profound love for each other, as well as their profound grief 
at the necessity of David leaving. David demonstrates his great respect and gratitude to Jonathan. He bows before him three times and they weep. And Jonathan comforts David, comforts his good friend. He says, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And David rises and departs and Jonathan returns to Gibeah. Now this parting of friends, this moment where the sinfulness and evil of Saul results in the mourning and the separation of friends, this moment has been described by Jonathan in the text as the very purposes of God. The evil and sinfulness of Saul is described by Jonathan as the very purposes of God. It is God who has sent you away. Now for some here today, that may cause confusion and frustration. I suggest to you, and Jonathan's word in the text confirm, God uses evil to fulfill his purposes. Now, I know this is a question some of you have because quite a few of you have raised an issue with me about earlier chapters, and that issue really is the same question. Quite a few people have asked me about events in chapters 16 and 18 and 19 that pertain to this very issue, events that I didn't have time to address in my sermons until now. If you remember, in chapter 16, we read that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We read in chapter 18, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. We also read in chapter 19 that a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. Now the question that lies behind many people's inquisitiveness about these events is this. Pastor Jude, are you telling us that God used evil to bring about his purposes? Are you telling us that God employed an evil spirit to bring about his will? What in the world is up with that? And so now we return to the quote by D.A. Carson. And I suggest to you that coming to terms with that quote, or rather what the, the truth that that quote communicates, coming to terms with that is integral to understanding many issues in the Bible and many issues that trouble people as they engage with the Bible. We need to come to terms with these things. We need to come to terms with the fact that God is sovereign over all of creation. I like how the Bethlehem Baptist Church elder affirmation of faith talks about this. It says, God upholds and governs all things 
From galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movement of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself. As such, Scripture declares that God is sovereign over evil, And that sovereignty is in accord with his purposes. That means God is sovereign in such that he employs evil people, he employs evil circumstances, he employs evil actions, and he even employs evil spirits for his purposes. Now, that does not mean that God commits sin. He never sins. He is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as he, according to Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. This does not mean that God is the positive cause of sin. Sinful beings are the cause. This does not mean that God approves of sin. He doesn't, according to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. This does not mean that God ordains sin for its own sake. Rather, consider Joseph and what he said to his brothers about their evil deeds. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's Genesis 50, 20. So, if God being so sovereign over evil doesn't mean those things, what does it mean? Let's go back to D.A. Carson. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty, yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to the secondary agents, the secondary causes, i.e. those who actually do it. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. If this sounds just a bit too convenient for God, my initial response, though there is more to be said, is that according to the Bible, this is the only God there is. So let me summarize. Evil is within the sovereign control of God. God is never blamable for evil. It is evil beings, humans, spirits that are blamable for evil. And we've seen that today. We've seen that play out in our passage today. David made a plan necessitated by Saul's sin, by Saul's evil. And that evil was ordained by God to bring about God's purposes. The Lord sent David away. And we need to understand this about God, that we might navigate this life, a life in a sinful world as sinners. We need to understand this. And there's much more that could be said, obviously. But let me finish this morning by sharing with you a scripture passage, a scripture passage which confirms this great truth, and it confirms it in the most important event the world has ever seen, 
It confirms it in an event that is far greater, far sadder, far more tragic, and far more evil than the parting of Jonathan and Saul. It confirms it in an event that is also far more glorious than anything this world has ever experienced. Peter relates this great event in which God sovereignly ordains evil for his purpose. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God sovereignly reigns over creation. He even ordains what comes to pass through evil events and through evil beings, and he does so for his glorious purposes. He did so in the time of David. He did so in the time of Jesus, and he does so in our time for his glory, for the spread of the gospel, and for our good. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would help us this morning. We pray that your spirit would help us to begin to wrap our minds around this great biblical truth that you are sovereign over all creation. And though, Father God, we would never come to a place where we would exhaustively understand that. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to grow in our understanding of it and of our application of that truth to our lives. That we would know, even in evil events, even as evil people and sin 
seems to have its way on this earth. You reign over all of it. Help us to never charge you with evil. Help us to never blame you for evil. But let us recognize that you reign sovereignly over it. And help us by your spirit to look to the gospel, to look to the death and resurrection of Christ where we see that truth worked out in the most dazzling, glorious, beneficial way that we could ever imagine. And help us to live our lives in light of that. I pray this in Christ's name.